We're continuing our look at the life of David. You know, let me introduce myself. I see some unfamiliar faces. My name is Charles, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and if we haven't met, I would love to, I would just love to meet you. So please come up and say hi after the service. That would bring me great joy. And if you are new with uh, with us, uh, we're in the middle of a series looking at the life of David. And uh, David, the life of David in 10 weeks, if you can believe it, is an impossible task. So what we did was we cherry-picked some of our favorite stories that we would uh, preach to you. And last week, we got a sweet picture of the tender heart of David as in his lament over the death of his enemy, Saul, who was seeking his own death. He was, uh, he was mourning over Israel's loss of her king. And, of course, the death of his uh, best friend, Jonathan, who was Saul's son. And as we look at this story, one of the things I want you to see is that we're getting another peek at the heart of David. David has just been coronated as the king of both the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, Israel. That is a seminal moment in the life of Israel, that that what was divided has now been brought together. And David is their king, and he gets an idea that the ark of God, which has its own long history amongst God's people, should be in the capital city of Jerusalem. And so the ark, which has been with the people for a long time, was a symbol of God's presence with the people. And as much as his presence was celebrated, it was also something that should be treated with the utmost respect. Uh, God gave the people uh, explicit instructions about the kind of reverence and respect that the ark was supposed to be treated with, and they violated these instructions the first time around when they tried to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and uh, it was tragic. A man named Uzzah died, and in fear, they stashed the ark in somebody's house, a man's house named Obed-Edom. And uh, we don't know much about Obed-Edom. We think that he was a Gentile because of his name, But some funny things started to happen when the ark landed in Obed-Edom's house. It says the ark was with them for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So where we're picking up this morning is where news of this activity of God's blessing flowing to the house that houses the ark reaches David and his courts in Jerusalem. Let's look together. I'm going to read 2 Samuel 6. Verses 12 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. 
And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be among us and speak to us as your people, that you would be a father to us, and that you would be a helper to us as we hear from your word, as we consider your word in our lives, as we arrange ourselves under the authority of your word. Will you help us? Be our helper. Help us to hear what you would have us hear. And I pray you would help me to speak only what you would have me speak. Help me to love these friends well and honor you with the words that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question as we get started. Imagine that you were in David's court. Imagine you were one of his people in his inner circle, and you love David. But you're also familiar with what happened the last time you all went out and tried to relocate the Ark of God. Here's the question. What is going through your mind when you hear David say, let's give that another shot? My bet is you would be conflicted. That uh, on the one hand, you know there's a long history in God's people of God's blessings flowing to his people through that ark. And you have a real-time example of this happening in the household it resides in. And so in one sense, you might have some hope and some joy. But you also, on the other hand, have learned that drawing near to God can be dangerous. And so the question I think you would ask, and I think is good for us to ask, is does the joy of God's blessing outweigh the fear of being near him? When we look at the passage, what we're seeing is David drawing near to God. And we're also seeing God drawing near to his people. And we see all of this happening with the tragedy of what happened to Uzzah, very visible in the rearview mirror. What was David looking for? Uh, what, What did he do? And what did he receive? Those are the questions I want to ask as we lean into this, pa- this, ta- this, uh, this passage. What did David want? What did David do? And what did David get? Okay? First, what, what did David want? Verse 12, I mean, it's pretty obvious 
that the first thing he wanted was God's blessing, right? That's clear. Verse 12, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. I mean, it lays the source of blessing right there with the ark of God. All that David wanted, it's really this simple, that he wanted for his people what was being currently enjoyed by Obed-Edom and his entire house. That just, just as God's blessings extended to the members of the household, David wanted God's blessings extending to all the members of God's kingdom. And in the big picture, if you pan the camera back just a little bit, what David wanted also was God's imminence among the people. and wanted God's nearness among them. Because that is exactly what the ark represented to them. The ark was this reminder to the people that God was with them. It went before them in battle, and it was a reminder to God's people that his favor was upon them. When the ark was near, it meant God was near. And I would propose to you that David was simply seeking to accomplish for his people what he wanted for his people, and in the imminence and blessing is, is something that we want too. Like, think about the way that we pray for each other. I heard, I, heard, uh, I heard Lauren pray it earlier in the prayer. She asked that God would be near us as his people, especially to be near to those who are hurting right now. And these are the kind of prayers we pray for each other, especially when we're in a place of need. And we, quote, we remind each other and we quote beautiful lines from Psalms like the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. That if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are what? You are with me. And the wonder of it all, that just as the Bible speaks, as if the great longing of our souls is the close proximity, the eminence of God, that God also desires to be near us. In fact, that's the entire story. And look at the way the Bible begins and ends. The Bible begins with a picture of God and man in perfect fellowship with each other. I mean, that's, the, that's what's so ideal about that. There's much that's great that flows from that, but it starts with God in perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve. That's the way the, that's the, way the whole story starts. And then, of course, as the story goes, sin entered the world. And then what did they do? They, they hid from God. That sin was the reason for the separation between God and man. Sin is the reason that God, a perfect righteous God can't cohabit with an unrighteous people. But how does the story that the Bible give us end? What, what is the history of the world according to the Bible? How does, how does it end? Well, it, it ends with an amazing promise. In Revelation 21, John hears a loud voice from heaven proclaim, behold, the dwelling of the Lord is with man. That the story that the Bible gives us of God's dealings in the world is how the relationship that was first violated can be reconciled. That is what God wants. That just as we were made for God and we desire to be with him and that all of our longings point to the healed relationship with God, that God, that, 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 that God shares those desires to be with you too. 
and that the entire story of the Bible is a proposition to you about how what was once broken will one, will one day be mended. And that is what God, that is what David wants in this passage, and it's also what I would say you and I want to. And the Bible has an answer for it. So that's what David wanted. But how did, he, how did he go about it? And to me, this is incredibly fascinating. All the elements of the details that went into this procession of the ark to Jerusalem. First, we see that David led the way. We know that this is a dangerous task. And verse 12 tells us that it was David that went up and brought the ark of God. He didn't assign it to anybody else. But he put himself forward, and as he boldly approached the ark, he adopted the role of a priest. I gotta see, I, you've gotta see this. This is in verse 13. Look, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone sit six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. That's what priests do. Priests are the ones that perform these sacrifices. And in verse 14, he's wearing a linen ephod. Why is that important? Well, because that's the humble garment of a priest as he's going about his work. That a priest puts on the ephod. And, uh, and, and so what he did was he exchanged his royal clothes for a priest's clothes. And then in verse 17, when the ark reaches Jerusalem, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Again, he is serving the people in the role of a priest. It's amazing. Now, what does a priest do? What a, priest, a priest's job is to represent the people to God and represent God to the people. They're the ones that stand in between God and the people and bring them together. They bridge the gap. And we should understand, we should think about that. The next, like God calls us a kingdom of priests. That's part of our job, that we are the ones that bridge the gap between people who don't know God and God. We are to bring them together. But that's what David is doing in this passage, bridging the gap between God and man, serving as a priest in the context of a worship service. This is one long, drawn-out worship service that we're seeing in this passage. And notice the way that he comfortably blends both the joy of the Lord and reverence for the Lord at the same time. I mean, we see, we see singing and we see dancing with all his might. In a worship service, we see horns blowing, so instruments are playing, people are shouting, there's large, there's amazing just expressions, loud, visible, audible expressions of joy throughout this. At the end, in verse 19, he caps off the whole thing with the serving of a meal. It's very interesting. But all along the way, what we see is that joy for the Lord and reverence for the Lord are actually not fear of the Lord are actually not mutually exclusive. In fact, they cooperate with each other. They're enjoying the eminence of God. This is, what my, this is what I would propose to you. They're enjoying the eminence of God all at the same time as respecting the transcendence of God. When Uzzah died, the problem wasn't that he had a momentary lapse of judgment and the ark started to slide and he just instinctively reached out and touched it, which he was forbidden to do. What was actually happening was a complete wholesale disregard for God's instructions. In that story, we see, we see that it was only supposed to be carried by certain people on shoulders using poles. It was supposed to be covered, and no one was to touch it. 
And Uzzah reached out to study the ark because an ox stumbled, which meant that it was being carried on a cart. Uh, and this story and the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 15 are just careful to note how the ark is now being carried in the proper way as God instructed. That in the midst of all these expressions of joy, there's also great reverence to God's terms that he gave them for how the ark was to be treated. Reverence, fear of the Lord, and joy of the Lord existing at the same time. In fact, cooperating with each other. That they come to God with great joy, but they also come to him on his terms, not on their terms. Many of you know... Uh, the name of uh, this pastor, many of you know the name Tim Keller, prominent pastor all over the world. Uh, many of you have heard him speak. You've read articles he's written. He's a faithful pastor. He's taught the scriptures for several decades. Um, and if you know of him, you, you might know that he was diagnosed with cancer not too long ago. That he got really difficult. He had a really difficult diagnosis. Uh, at the time, and uh, he wrote an article that was published in the Atlantic about his journey of faith since the terrible news of his cancer um, came to him. What did that look like? Um, and he said something really interesting I wanted to share with you. He said that when he received the news about his cancer, he had to go back and take a hard look at everything he believed. Like it was a gut check moment for him. And this is, this is what he said. He asked this question. I'm quoting him here. Have my beliefs been shaped by my culture? Had I been slipping unconsciously into the supposition that God lived for me rather than I for him? That life should go well for me? That I knew better than God does how things should go? Now, I... When I read that, I could feel my heart rate go up. Because here was a guy who had been as immersed in the study and teaching of the scriptures as anybody, who was as articulate and intelligent and devoted to his craft as anybody, a faithful pastor who had pastored for a lot of years, and even he is asking the question, do I believe in the God as he's presented himself to me in the Bible? Or am I actually trusting something I've constructed in my own mind? Do I approach God on my own terms? Or do I come to him on his? Many of you know, uh, you know <laughs> it's a silly sport, uh, but many of you know that I love to whitewater kayak uh, it's just, it's something I grew into as a member of my family. My father taught it to me and, uh, I, you know, some of my best friends are also paddlers, but there's something that's just really fascinating to me about moving water. Uh, I love, uh, like the danger of it to me. A good day is friends and boats with paddles and, uh, and fast moving water. Okay. That's my idea of a good time. And, uh, and to me, I've just never been on a river where I wasn't struck by the beauty of it. I mean, just incredible. The way the sun reflects off the water, the lush green banks and trees growing up. I remember last fall, I was going down a river and, uh, and it was cold, but the fall had set in and I turned the corner and these trees with orange leaves overhanging the river were just 
It was like it was raining orange leaves on the river in front of me with a little bit of fog in the morning. I mean, I just can't, like the beauty of that place is just astounding to me. And yet, for as beautiful as it is, it is also incredibly powerful. I mean, there's a reason, there's a reason that we wear helmets and life jackets and throw ropes and all the safety gears because there is real danger For as beautiful and as inviting as that place feels to me, you come to that place on its terms, not on your own. And that's one of the things that we're seeing in this passage, is that what we see is that David is coming to God and teaching his people to come to God on his terms, not on their own. And here's what I'm getting at. That the Bible throws two things together that can be really confusing to us. It tells us that just as God is someone to draw near to, that he's also someone that's incredibly powerful. That uh, when God speaks, he speaks with power. That it was by his words that the world was created. That he's a judge who will one day judge the nations. That, that he holds our whole life in his hands. But it also, he also teaches us that his throne is a throne of grace, that he's tender-hearted and long in compassion for those that he loves. And this, could make, this, can, this can be confusing to us, that, that should I fear him or should I understand God as someone who I draw close to? And the Bible is teaching us that this is a both and, it's not an either or, that he is both transcendent and he is imminent, that the same God who created the world Um, and is the one who hears the prayers of his people. That the God who spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend is also the one who hid Moses in a rock as his glory passed by, right? Uh, That uh, the God who stirred up a storm um, and, and sent a big fish to swallow Jonah in his supreme power is also the same one that had a compassion on the whole city of Nineveh when they repented. That it's a bo- he is both transcendent and he is someone to draw near to. It's a both and. And as mind-bending as this could be, I would just simply say that when we look at God, we need to see both of those things. That we both need to understand him as somebody who is just, just transcendent in his power, can do anything. Someone that we even don't understand. If we could understand him, he wouldn't be God. But we also need to be able to see him as someone who is quick to forgive and slow to anger. Someone whose compassion and mercy extends to even you because he is someone who is composed, whose character is one of deep love. We need to see both of those things. And the beauty of the gospel is that this is seen most clearly in the person and life of Jesus Christ when he was among us. Look, look at Colossians 1. This is sometimes, I should have dropped this in. Sometimes this is our confession of faith uh, that we use. I should have dropped it in, but I didn't think of it until, uh, until a couple days ago. It, Colossians 1 tells us he is the image of the invisible God. That by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the king of creation. And yet this king of creation also came to us as a child. Transcendence and eminence finds 
finds its intersection in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived among us and persevered in suffering. And just as David offered a sacrifice that brings the ark of God into the city of God's people, Jesus is the one who offers the sacrifice required so that God and man can dwell together again. We trace our whole lives and our whole hope of cohabiting with God, the longing, the deep longing of our hearts to the sacrifice that Jesus offered. That he was the only one that had the power, but he's also the one that had the deep compassion. And when, listen, I know we're not a congregation who is going to start spontaneously dancing, okay? I want you to know I get it, all right? Uh, And I I want you to know I'm never going to argue for that. Nobody wants to see that, okay? But listen, I think we can learn something from this. When we see David singing and dancing with all of his might before the Lord, it's because he knew with a wonder in his heart the joy of God and man being together again. That's what the context of their worship was all about. And I would submit to you that every time we gather like we are right now and worship before holy God, we are celebrating with a wonder and a joy in our hearts, with loud singing, with playing instruments. There might even be a spontaneous raising of hands, maybe never past our shoulders. Okay, we might do that. And all of that would be fine because our hearts should be captivated by the joy, the sheer wonder that just as God is drawing near to us here in this place with the Holy Spirit, it is a foretaste of the life that he promises us when we will exist together, God and man dwelling together again with the transcendent and yet the eminent one. What we know by faith now, we will know by sight. And that's where we begin to talk about just what David received. Because one of the first things he got was contempt when he walked home, didn't he? Did you notice that? His wife, Michael, met him at the door. And she hits him with sarcasm. Oh, how the king dignified himself today. That cuts, doesn't it? She thought it was undignified for the king to exchange the royal outfit for priestly robes. She was also obviously concerned about what other women were thinking as they looked at her husband. Remember that Michael first fell in love with David when women were singing about his military victories. She was coming to David on her terms for him. She was doing with David what we often do with God. But what we see in David, in his response to her, is that all of the freedom he was enjoying, in his dancing, and his singing, his dancing with all his might, that the freedom he was enjoying in front of all of God's people was real. Because what did he say to her? I will make merry before the Lord. I will even be more contemptible in your eyes than this. He said, I don't need your approval for my joy. He said, I have all the approval I'll ever need in the Lord. He traced his freedom and found it in the genuine joy of being near to God. Listen, when you are close to God, when you are loved by God, 
That is joy itself. And to miss the joy of God is to miss God himself. And that's the saddest part of the story. Because that, that's what Michael, in her hard-edged contempt, in her brittle spirit, that's what she was missing. Let me close with this. All week while I was looking at this passage, I kept thinking about the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. And I got to tell you, I was shocked to find we don't have a copy of it in our house. And that is going to be remedied soon. I don't know where. I think we have one at one time. I don't know where it went. We probably lost it in a move. Um, But if you're not familiar with it, I think you should read it. And if you don't have a copy, I'll inform you that you can find somebody reading it out loud on YouTube. That's what I did um, as well. So that's available to you. And I would defy even the hardest of hearts among us not to cry when you do. Okay? It's an amazing story. It's a children's story about a stuffed rabbit that was given to a little boy. And uh, as the story goes, the rabbit, this little stuffed rabbit, was surrounded by all of these snobbier toys that uh, that snubbed him. The mechanical toys, as it went, snubbed him, didn't want his friendship, and they kept telling him, you're not real. I'm real. You're not real. And the only toy that would talk to the Velveteen Rabbit was the old skin horse. And at some point, the rabbit asked the skin horse, what does it mean to be real? And here's the quote I want to give you. The skin horse, the old wizened skin horse, looks back at the velveteen rabbit and says, real is something you become. And it takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. And your eyes drop out. And you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you are real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand. A toy becomes real when it's the object of the constant and unadulterated affection. And you might be here this morning, you might feel a little beat up. You might feel like your joints are a little shabby. You might be asking questions about, his, about who God is and what his terms are for you. I like to think that my hair is being loved off. But if you are in Christ, I want you to know that you are, you are made real. And you are becoming right now the truest part of yourself. Because you are the object of Jesus' constant and unadulterated affection. And his magisterial rule and his constant favor are yours now and forever. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that in the midst of this pronouncement, of the love of Christ, that you would be speaking the same truth to our hearts in a way that helps us to believe it. Tell us the story again and again. I pray you be with us as we consider these things. Deepen us in faith.
and draw us to, into an ever-increasing love for Jesus. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.